Magnus Podcast, Episode 7, Read Homer. Welcome back to another episode of the Magnus Podcast. In this interview with Dr. Travis Cooper of Thomas Aquinas College in Santa Paula, California, we begin a series of long-form discussions really highlighting the great work being done at Thomas Aquinas College. If you have never read Homer's Iliad or Odyssey, you should. And maybe that seemed daunting in the past, but Dr. Cooper in this discussion is going to provide some great starting points to hopefully make the text more accessible for you. And if you have already had the joy of reading these great works, then you're going to find a number of gems to further your meditation. Some really great stuff here from Dr. Cooper, who earned a doctorate in philosophy from Catholic University of America, and at some point fell in love with epic literature. He definitely deepened my appreciation for it in this discussion Be sure to share this podcast with your friends, subscribe to it. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts at the Albertus Magnus Institute. More at magnusinstitute.org. Without further ado, here's our discussion with Dr. Travis Cooper. A certain maturity to really appreciate Homer, as far as I can tell. Um, Seems to me that Homer is the first great writer in the West, in the literary tradition, certainly, who somehow keys into or hits upon, stumbles upon, if you will, uh, fundamental images and uh, and stories, ultimately, that reveal to us in our following them out and experiencing them while reading them, or better yet, hearing them, um, reveal to us uh, certain fundamental realities about our human condition. So... um, In the Iliad, for example, Homer is ostensibly speaking about war and the causes of war, and that's true. But he's not merely speaking about that. He's very often using images of peace to describe the men at war. And the shield of Achilles is one that portrays the tranquility of peace in most of the parts of the shield. So Homer has, um, as the epics do that follow his tradition, has a scope or a vision of the world that's not just limited to a particular slice of human life or a particular time of human life. He's looking at the cosmos and looking at it in its ordering under the gods and under Zeus, ultimately. And the human uh, role in that cosmos and the human condition in that cosmos. Um, I think with Achilles in particular, he's got in mind the human frustration with death. What do we do about death? So if the modern reader first cracks open the Iliad or the Odyssey, the first thing that might strike him is a sort of archaic tone that might seem inaccessible and difficult to pierce. Yeah. Um, just practically, how would you recommend somebody approach either of these works uh, at first mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to punch through that mm-hmm. apparent difficulty? seems to me the best thing is to hear them and not to read them, which seems a little strange to say from a great book's background, right? You're supposed to be reading, but I, I think it's valuable when, the, when it's poetry, and here it's, um, it's, it's rhythmic poetry, um, to listen to Homer 
and to listen leisurely to Homer rather than just read through it quickly. You need to be at leisure. When you I was it. talking to these students last night in the men's dorm, yeah. and they were telling me about this marathon they did. Yeah, like they, they slaughtered yeah. a goat, and <laughs> and then they they, they had signups and took turns reading the entirety of the Iliad, mm-hmm. and it took like what ten hours or something. Yes. And there were hardcore students who listened to the whole thing, yes. I'm told. Yes. Yeah, they do amazing things. They've done that for a couple of years. <clears throat> now, me. if you can't get your own personal uh, orator and goat, such as at TAC, how would you recommend listening to uh, the poems of Homer? Well, Audible, right? There's certain yep. websites that have um, books on, I guess, not CD anymore, not even on tape, right? What are they on now? Books yeah, yeah. On? MP3, MP3, whatever yeah. the kids are listening to there. Exactly. Yeah. That's the kind of thing I would do. It's the first way. What's the best translation you recommend? Oh, <clears throat> I'm not even an expert in Homer at all. Uh, I don't know for sure. I do like the um, the one that we use, which is Lattimore. Okay. And we use Lattimore for both the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh-huh. I'm not certain it's the best. Um, there's an old, what is it? Is, Pope's tra- is it Pope or Dryden? There's um, older English translations that are beautiful translations that may not be as faithful. Right. Um, I would just pick one that you find to be pleasing. Uh, okay. Just looking at the average reader wants to appreciate Homer. Don't be too picky necessarily about the accuracy of the translation. It would be yeah. too difficult to determine that. I've seen that some are sort of uh, in more poetic uh, f- phrasing, more stanzas, and some are just narrative <laughs> form. Do you recommend one over the other? I would try the poetic first, just because yeah. you want to get this, the poetic rhythm and the sense that, that the audience would have had in Homer's time. And that sacrifices some accuracy, generally speaking. But in a, in the poem i think that's it's more important hmm. that's what mm-hmm. i to start with so what is the uh in a nutshell the homeric vision of man describe for us the anthropology that homer is yeah. using well um seems to me that if you start with the iliad what homer is laying out before you in the person of achilles is the struggle with mortality achilles who's half man and half God has to deal somehow with, has to face and somehow um, resolve the conflict in his own nature over the fact that he's going to die despite being born of a goddess. In his case, that uh, in his culture, that shows up as um, uh, an inquiry and a, a beginning to recognize the futility of honor. So honor was um, what was given to the warrior in his culture, as a recompense for putting his life on the line for death. Mm. And Achilles, in book one, in the face of Agamemnon's dishonoring him and um, treating him unjustly, is beginning to distance himself from that convention. Took, took his woman. Right, yeah. But did, did exactly what, uh, what caused the Greeks to be at war in the first place. Right. <laughs> he sees the hypocrisy in that. And he also sees that he's, he's not getting the honor he deserves for putting his life on the line. He's going to die at a very young age. He's not getting what he deserves out of that. And that, that sets him on a road, I think, of beginning to look at this entire convention, this entire system of conventions um, that he's been assuming his entire life. And ultimately, it leads him to, to see that, n- that none of these recompenses for death is sufficient. And that's what leads to the great anger of Achilles, it seems to me. That's at the, f- the fueling his anger at the bottom of it, is what do I, how am I going to deal with my, my death, my impending death? And what Zeus is doing is, is moving him to engage that anger and to accept his death ultimately. So by the end of book, book 24, the end of the, the Iliad, what 
we're seeing through the person of Achilles is this magnificent transformation of a character who has been um, in high rage for several books up to the near, nearly the end of the Iliad and in complete um, detestation of his own mortality. He's dragging the body of Hector around mm. and around and around. Hector has just died at his hands and Hector was wearing his own arm, Achilles' armor. So when Achilles fights and kills Hector, he's fighting and killing a great warrior wearing his own mortal armor. He's killing himself in a way, and yeah. he's detesting his own mortality. And there, and there is a, a similarity. Maybe you could comment on this: the way mm-hmm. in which Hector accepts his own death, mm-hmm. finally after literally running around, mm-hmm. you know, being chased, and then he just accepts it mm-hmm. and knows he's going to be slain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Achilles, who in a maybe similar way accepts his death. Yeah, Hector seems at the last to have finally seen his true position or his true state, his true impending death. He seems to have been somehow ignorant or blind up to that point that he could somehow win or something like that. Um, but he has a moment of clarity at the end and he submits, it seems to me. It takes Achilles a little longer to submit. Um, but there's ultimately the same submission by Achilles at mm-hmm. the end. And you see that in book 24. So, yeah, it seems to me that what Homer is getting us to see by us sympathizing with the character of Achilles and following him in his trials and in his progression is to understand that we can't fight our own death and that the way to get out of this cycle, which is really internal for Achilles, it's self-centered in a way, it's not looking outside the other except as fuel for oneself, is by, is by seeing that other, in this case Priam, his enemy, as a fellow man. He sees his father in Priam's embassy. He sees his, yes. that, and that means he sees his mortality in yes. Priam's embassy. And then he goes out to Priam in love, in, in, or sympathy at least, if not love. And that's when he finally gives up the body of Hector mm-hmm. out of sympathy for his enemy. He's giving up his own mortality. He's no longer defacing it, no longer fighting in, uh, against it or raging against it. He's now giving it back up. So would you say, I mean, uh, this is personified in, in that his army is fighting against Priam's army, uh, but is there... Is there, at root of Achilles' irascibility, is something patricidal that he finally comes to term with uh, in accepting uh, Priam when he asks for his son's body back? Mm -hmm. In a certain way, I think there is. His father is the one he's raging against because his father is responsible for his mortality. Ultimately, you could say Zeus is, because Zeus arranged it this way, but his father is the source of his mortality because his father is human and his mother is not. So yes, there, there's a rage against his father, um, but that's being relinquished in book 24 in the face of uh, a suffering old man like his father. Um, and so he's giving up his, as you said, patricidal anger, and he's actually turning to sympathy and sorrow for someone in his father's condition. And that rage, the patricidal rage doesn't seem to be as, or it doesn't seem to be present in Hector, would you right. say? I don't think so. Um, but yeah. there is a sort of... Um, abandonment of of priam by hector when he just when he goes out to fight against his father's urgings right yeah something about hector either changes or becomes more apparent near the end of his his fighting in his life it seems like hector more and more desires the glory that comes with fighting he's like the old achilles he's like the achilles at the beginning of book one he becomes the great representation of that old achilles that's why homer beautifully has him wearing achilles's armor it seems to me in their duel Hector is engage, engaging the duel for the sake of glory, and he's doing it 
in a way that's a miss, I think. And we're supposed to see that because he's... Well, it's literally a miss because he thinks he's killing Achilles when he kills Patroclus, right? Patroclus is wearing yes. Achilles' armor. Yes. Yeah, that's that's suggestive. Also, the fact that Hector sends back his old armor to the city. Um, he doesn't go back to the walls and fight from the walls and try to defend Troy as he's been asked to, as they plead with him to do. He wants to go out there and face Achilles and destroy him. So there's a way in which Homer is letting us see that Hector is announcing his own death without knowing it by sending back the armor, taking on Achilles' armor, which Zeus comments on. I think it's Zeus who comments on and says, oh, you should not have done that. You've, right, you've sealed your fate in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think in Hector's case, there's, there's this, it's a great triumph in, of, on his part, but it's a triumph in which um, he's uh, only at the very end seeing what Achilles starts to see in book one. He's, he's seeing the, the futility, maybe. Um, so, yeah, I guess the way I'm, what I'm trying to say is he's the price of his glory-seeking is his own death. Hmm. And that's what sets Achilles off in book one, is he sees that that price is too high. But Hector doesn't seem to see it's too high until the very, very end, hmm. if then, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. Um, how would you distinguish uh, an anthropology at work in the Iliad versus that of the Odyssey? Yeah, that's a huge question controversial one uh, i don't think that they're opposed they're certainly not the same and i would uh, so i would say they're complementary i think what's going on in the iliad is that homer's presenting human nature under his tragic conditions and in the odyssey under its comic conditions say more about that and yeah. just just for our audience what would be the difference briefly um in tragedy the poet tends to look at human life in its and human uh, greatness but looking at human greatness precisely as the source or cause of a, of a fall and of suffering at the hands of the gods very often, at least in Greek tragedy. Whereas in comedy, the poet is looking at the, low, hum, the lowliness of the human estate, but the beauty and the, um, the gloriousness of that lowliness, of humility, basically. And he's um, showing that to be the beginnings, the the, the low, accepting your lowliness is the beginning of a movement upward in, in your yes. human condition. So in a comedy, you could say that good things happen to bad people who don't necessarily deserve the good things to happen to yeah. you. And a tragedy, bad things happen to great people. Yes. And I think great's the right word there. They're not good exactly. That's they right. may be good, but they're great. They're noble. They're noble-minded and they're wonderful in some ways, but they're also defective. And That's the, right. Their nobility is a cause and source of their own defect. Right. Okay, so um, how about Odysseus? Yeah. So in Odysseus's case, uh, I think what we're supposed to experience in the poem is that what's important for Odysseus to get home successfully, unlike many of his fellow Greeks, is to suffer and to endure and to learn from that suffering. So often a tragic character undergoes suffering but doesn't learn from that suffering. I think of Macbeth, for example. Um, but Odysseus has to learn from that suffering and to endure it patiently. And has to do, and while doing so, he has to keep his eye on the prize. That's what Tiresias' directions are to him in Hades. You have to do this, this, and this. You have to keep your eye on home, keep your desire on home to attain home, but endure your trials patiently and control your desires so that you can achieve home. So what seems to be common to all of us in the story of Odysseus is the need and the trials of earthly life to patiently endure suffering and to learn from it so that when we're set in a situation in which our suffering can be at an end and we can achieve some kind of good we are ready to put to use what we've achieved particularly our patience in achieving that good it's very interesting because uh you say that something odysseus has to learn is to to 
to moderate his desires, whereas Achilles has to moderate his anger. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see in these two works um, uh, an exemplification at work of the Iliad, say, representing the irascible aspects of man and the Odyssey, the concupiscible? So everything, everything oh, yeah. about... Um, Achilles is is about moderating his rage, his anger, mm-hmm. and everything about Odysseus is about uh, channeling and uh, moderating his his love. Mm-hmm. Is there anything there? I think so. I hadn't thought about it quite that way. That is helpful. I think there are some qualifications. I think that's most true of Odysseus's men. The desires <laughs> that they have to control are. Um, well, the eating example, eating the cows, right? The sacred, yeah. the sacred cows. You don't eat the sacred cows, right? <laughs> so there's the huge question. One of the huge questions in the in the Odyssey is um, is about the human control, the desire for eating, what you eat, and when you eat, and how you eat. Um, that comes up with with Odysseus in particular, but his men, I think, most particularly. And what you see, what you hear. I mean, as far as the sirens, yes. and the rocks. Right? Yes. So that that comes under maybe desire for knowledge, which is sharp and, and keen in, in Odysseus. I mean, yes. And it has to be controlled. It has to be curbed. Eventually, he has to lay down that desire in order to go home. Right. Seems to me. But ultimately, he's he's driven by his love for his bride. He yes. wants to return to his bride. Right. And that comes up comes up in him most poignantly when he spends all that time on Calypso's island. That gets him to That's right. really desire home. And ultimately, Achilles is is driven by a, a desire for vengeance against the loss of his of yes. his good. Yes, right? that's right. Um, is there any correlation between, obviously, um, Plato wrote the Republic much later than Homer uh, came up with the Iliad and the Odyssey, but is there any relation in Homer, at least latently, of... Plato's levels of the the soul, that is the erotic, the thumatic, and then finally the logical at the top of the pyramid. Uh, so at base, we we have this concupiscible desire for goods that are pleasant, and then above that, we're you know we have a desire for honor, the thumatic uh, desire, irascible desire for goods that are difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think uh, any of that is uh, is present at least in a in a latent way with Homer? I think latently, you don't see so clearly what Plato sees about the intellect and about uh, mind. This Maybe. is true, but you do see um, something about that. You see the, the many turned ways. Is the, what the man of many turns is who Odysseus is. There's a kind of cleverness right. that's being developed in him. You almost see that the most through Odysseus in the Iliad. Um, you do see it in the Iliad. That's true. Yeah, yeah. But you see that great development of it over the course Odysseus of time. Odysseus is kind of the voice of reason in the Iliad, um, mm-hmm. and Prudence in particular. He's he's a wise and crafty man. Right. He knows what needs to be done in the moment. Yeah. I think you see that at work in the Odyssey when um, he learns from the 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 sequence, the scene with the Cyclops. He learns from that, and Homer, in the way he speaks about the the cleansing of his house, the destroying the suitors, and the cleansing of his house of the suitors near the end. There, Homer uses images and words that make you call to mind the Cyclops episode because Odysseus is putting to use what he learned there to bring about prudently, wisely, or craftily, if you will, the destruction of the suitors at the end. And that's intentional on Homer's part. Um, so I think that in that way, what you have in Plato is maybe latent in Homer. This notion of there's a greatness or excellence in Odysseus that I think is being praised in Homer's poem for his um, his prudence, his craftiness, which is of course is not thumos nor is it um, eros. It's it's in, in the level of noose, seems to me. Yeah, 
Uh, of course, my first question was man, uh, Homer's vision of man generally, man and woman. But could you comment specifically on his vision of uh, the relationship between man and woman or, yeah. or his vision of woman? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something sort of different about the way that uh, Helen is, is uh, uh, an instigator than the way Penelope is an instigator. Mm-hmm. Yes. So in the Iliad, Helen is the object of desire, the object of Eros that sets off the war. She doesn't come off very well in the Iliad. Um, although, I think Homer does want us to sympathize with her. She she regrets what she's done, it seems to me. Um, but uh, but she doesn't, it's tragic. She doesn't right? repent, right? She's kind of stuck. She is stuck. There's nothing that can be done. And it is tragic. So it's under the tragic um, perspective. In the Odyssey, I think the the Hellenic option, if you will, is there. That's a Kind of bad way of putting it, but um, the option of choosing <laughs> someone like that is present. So he could stay with Circe, or he could stay with Calypso. Yeah, and those are in a way like Helen. You could stay with this beautiful goddess your whole life. And Odysseus and Homer through Odysseus are getting us to see that that's not the choice that Odysseus makes because it's not what he ultimately wants. It's not what ultimately satisfies man. Um, that's a life of oblivion. It's a life in which he will no longer be known by anybody. Um, the life that he desires, as Teresia says, he must desire to come home, is a life with Penelope. And she's being presented as as the faithful, loving wife who is, in some way, I think, his equal as a prudent and crafty um, human being. So there's a, I think Homer's celebrating the kind of equality there and something human about this desire that, that Odysseus um, has for his wife that's right, rather than striving for something higher, striving for union with the goddess perpetually, right? Calypso, whether it's Calypso or Circe. Um, that's a temptation, but it's a temptation that he has to resist. And ultimately he finds out by spending that time on Calypso's island. It's a temptation that's at, on the face of it, initially attractive, but it ultimately doesn't satisfy him. And what satisfies him is going home to his wife. And even uh, to return to Penelope, there is not just the conquering of base erotic desire uh, with with the nymphs on the island but um he does have to go through some sort of cathartic um heroic victory of thumos as well right he's got to deal with the suitors right when he gets home that's right yeah so i think what homer is doing there one of the things that he's doing he's always doing many things but one of the things that he's accomplishing for us is showing forth odysseus and all his excellence if he didn't if he just stayed with calypso none of this would happen um, it's uh, it's the the need to come back and get rid of the suitors that shows forth the glory of human nature and its comic aspect or its comic perspective as Homer is presenting it. Namely, the ability to deal with, to to engage Thumos and to engage the mind in order to deal with wicked men and and situations to accomplish a human good. And that would never happen if he just stayed on Calypso's island. He'd be in oblivion and no one would know his his fate. He would just stay there perpetually. And he would die, and the suitors would eventually um, take over the estate, or one of them would take over the estate. Can you comment on Odysseus's love for his wife and his love for his son? It's harder for me to think about his love for his son. It, there's not as much material that I can remember to go on there. Um, his son's love for him, maybe. Yeah, there certainly is that. Uh, that has to be developed, it seems to me. He doesn't really know his father. Right. He gets to know his father beautifully enough in the first, I guess, five books by... Um, journeying to his father's um, comrades from the war, um, he, he learns about his father through them. 
And Homer presents it in a way that's beautiful. He presents it as um, Telemachus being revealed, his identity is revealed to these men in the same way that Odysseus is revealed on Phaeacia through weeping, mm. as a story being told. Mm. So the, the father-son connection is being emphasized there. And Telemachus is learning who his father is by doing so, and also more ostensibly, more importantly for him, I suppose more importantly, um, where his father is, or if his father is. And that journey is, is one in which Telemachus, seems to me, begins to appreciate and love his father, and also, uh, I think this is most clear, um, to become like his father, to mature, before coming back to aid his father in the destruction of the suitors. That's why I think Athena sends him on this journey, ultimately. He needs to grow up. He needs to learn who his father is and to appreciate that and to mature so that he can then help him to restore the house. There's been a decent amount of ink spilled on this uh, question of the Odyssey being uh, sort of a, a pre-imagery of the Christian narrative. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you comment briefly on that? So oh, for, yeah. for somebody who's never been up on the uh, discussions of this, how is Odysseus a Christ figure? Oh, yeah, that's, that's magnificent. There's, there should be a lot of ink spilled on that question. Um, he is a Christ figure. Homer's not an allegorist, but there's certainly something about um, human nature and our human condition that Homer is seeing that is real and is so real that uh, we see it most obviously in Revelation, in the story of uh, salvation history. So what Homer sees, to put it somewhat theologically, is that what is required is for man to accept his humble estate and to be aided by the gods in undergoing a kind of suffering so that he may arrive at a condition in which he can come back to his rightful inheritance. He can cleanse the house with fire and brimstone, notably. <laughs> That's what Odysseus uses to cleanse the house yep. of the wicked and to restore the good, to restore his servants who were faithful to him at the end. So what you see is a kind of um, version of salvation history that's, there's a parallel there. That Homer's seeing... Um, not clearly, but somehow is intuiting in, in the pattern of reality, if you will, he's seeing this this um, possibility in in human history. Tell us about the uh, the way that Odysseus returns at first veiled, yeah. so that nobody recognizes his his regal identity. Yeah, well, that certainly seems a pattern. Christ, right? Christ comes as in the flesh. Right. Um, Odysseus comes hidden, and then uh, eventually. The second coming, of course, of Christ is something like Odysseus' unveiling of himself and restoring the house at the end. Um, part of what Odysseus is doing there is trying, uh, uh, testing his servants, who are the faithful ones and who are the unfaithful ones. He's also getting the lay of the land. So it, he's putting to use the patience. The, the impatient and former Odysseus would have just come and would have tried to destroy the suitors immediately and would have failed. He would have died in the process, it seems like. The new Odysseus learned from the mistakes and the sufferings that were sent to him by Poseidon and Athena, it turns out, and is patient in um, figuring out the situation as it is and then setting it up so that at the end he can cleanse the house. Was his, was his hiddenness uh, also the means of his uh, uh, getting, getting to reconnect with his son in a way? You mean hiddenness to the rest of the world, but open with his, his son yes. saw through? Yes. Yeah, I think so. They're, they had some kind of they had the the possibility and the time set aside for kind of getting to know each other before he before he revealed made his himself. grand entry. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah that does seem right. 
So, um, how does a Christian make sense of this? Like, how does uh, how does Homer, uh, hundreds of years before Christ, obviously, mm-hmm. um, how is he tapping into this? Like you said, is it a yeah. uh, is it is it an act of prophecy? Is it an act of providence? Is it just his insight into human nature? Or what should a Christian think about this when he sees the obvious similarities? Because critics of Christianity will take things like this and say, look. Bible's all garbage because here's Homer doing the same thing. Right. Or look, here's the Epic of Gilgamesh, and that has a flood, and Noah right. had a flood too, uh, so it's all made up. Right. But clearly, that's not the case. Right. I think C.S. Lewis had his finger on that one uh, quite the best way, which was, well, they have what Christianity has because there's a common reality there that Christianity expresses perfectly, and they're all imperfectly grasping at it. So we should expect that commonality. Um, I think in Homer's case, it's certainly, it's always providential, but I, I think the great poets, Christian or non-Christian, to the degree that they're attentive to the world around them and to the experience that they have of that world and to other people in that world, Keats talks about the poet having to have no personality, by which he means being able to take on other people's personalities, but them, to be able to be put into their shoes and to experience life the way they would experience it. That kind of passivity or receptivity towards human experience, the greater it is and the greater their perception or their intuition is of the, of the human condition in that mode, the more they're going to be able to see about what it means to be human, what is good and what is evil, um, what is the meaning of suffering in life, um, what is the meaning of death, can we make any meaning of death? The answer to those questions is available even to non-Christians, at least in some fashion. And Homer's able to see that in the poetic um, manner. And that's not uh, unique to Homer. We see that in the Greek tragedies in particular. Aeschylus is incredible what he can see. Um, the Greeks uh, in general had the, the ability to, to know or at least to posit, to suspect that, as Aeschylus says it uh, in one translation, that wisdom comes somehow violent from the gods, mm. that through, in other words, through suffering man becomes wise, um, is remarkable. But that's not, it's not a, uh, a fact that is somehow beyond human experience. That's part of being human. Um, it's, it's not merely, uh, what I want to say, the fact that we become wise through suffering is, a pretty, com- is pretty commonplace. Um, but the way that the Greeks can see that and can attach it to or see how the gods have a role in that, that's what's remarkable. But it is rooted in in some common human experience and just being attentive to human experience, it seems to me. How would you distinguish this genre of epic literature as distinct from something like a novel? What is the epic? Well, that's a hard one. It seems to me that the, the novel takes elements of epic as well as of comedy and tragedy and incorporates it into its particular genre. If it is a genre, um, I don't think Aristotle would think of it as a genre necessarily, but we, we do now. Um, the epic seems to be traditionally about the political order and the cosmological order and their interrelationship. So in the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's about the destruction of a political order in the case of the Iliad and the institution of a new political order that the Shield of Achilles, I think, represents. The, the Greeks are destroying the Trojans and Zeus is allowing it because he sees the shortcomings of Troy and its political order. And he's bringing in this new political order. Um, the Odyssey is about the restoration of an old political order that's mm-hmm. been damaged and is, is falling into ruin. Um, and it, 
the order there isn't isn't just a, a regime; it's an order of goods. Uh, and you see in the Aeneid, the founding of a new one. So those three seem to give the basic pattern for the epic movement, which is the the journey of a hero, so as to found or refound the political order with all of the goods arranged hierarchically as they are according to the mind of that that culture in that order. That um, yeah, that culture. And then you see that. I think you see in some way in, in Dante and in, and in uh, Milton. But it, the novel seems to incorporate um, elements of that. So you see that in Moby Dick, for example, or in Brothers Karamazov. But it brings in the tragic movements and the comic movements, just like the epic do- does, but without the kind of strict order that I think the ancient genres, mm. tragedy, mm-hmm. comedy, and epic have. Uh, there seems to be a historical continuity to the tradition of epic. So, in other words, the Aeneid is, is in many ways, a synthesis of the Odyssey and the Iliad. Like, mm-hmm. both elements are there. Even some characters are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dante picks up on the Aeneid. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, Beowulf sort of gives way to Lord of the Rings, even. I mean, they're, like, throughout oh, time, like, these things are even... Uh, mm-hmm. These things are uh, uh, carrying on each other's legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that is something intrinsic to the epic style? In, in other words, they're sort of meant to be conveyed throughout uh, time and culture, uh, or is that just uh, accidental? I don't think it's accidental. I think the epic genre sees in the human condition or in human life some pattern of action that is noble and that is worthy and worthy of being celebrated. And it that action being real and not being just a construct has a kind of definitiveness and solidity to it, solidity and objectiveness to it that can then be described, that can be told in story form by the poet. And again, that, that action seems to be the founding or the refounding of societies um, based on the prior destruction of an old one, and usually a worse one. So Virgil can remix Homer for the yeah. sake of lifting up Rome. Right. He sees something about Rome, I think, both noble and both destructive in it, but he sees its, its power and its divine, divinely fated end, uh, purpose, or its mission. And he is, can springboard off of Homer to present the story of the founding of Rome along the lines of the founding, the refounding of, of Ithaca in the Odyssey. And, of course, the Iliad. He's using both of those, right? Yep. Yeah. And then in Dante, it's just taken up into a, a, Christ, a Christian context. Um, the order there is an order that's, that comes from Revelation, ultimately. And it's an order in which the hero is, again, like the Odyssey, a, a more of a, a man in a lowly condition. He's a sinner, right? Not, he's not man in his great high estate, which is uh, Achilles or, or right. um, Oedipus. It's man I, in this his is interesting. State. I know you weren't planning to talk about Dante uh, with me today, but um, there is something unique about Dante's epic insofar as I think he's the only one, he's the only author who's inserting himself into the epic. Hmm. Uh, right? I mean, as far it, as I know, that's right. Is he the only one? I what, think so. What do you make of that? Is it uh, breaking ranks uh, hmm. of the style? Is there something up to that? It does seem curious how Dante's, um, you know, not only in the story, but, but um, constantly poking through the fourth wall. You know, I, Dante, I, Dante. Yeah. That's a good question. It does make Dante much more complex and difficult to read. When is it, when do you have Dante? You have le- levels of Dante. You have Dante the the poet and Dante the pilgrim. That's right. You got to figure out what's going on there. I don't think it's a mistake. Um, it certainly is new, and I think that might be partly 
a result of just the historical circumstances of Dante. Because in the in the Platonic sense of poesis, right, the poets seem to know something, but they don't know why, and it has nothing to do with them. They're just sort of tapped into this right. higher frequency. Dante seems to definitely insert himself into his own poesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does seem, well, the evidence suggests that he's got a much more acute sense of what he's up to than we at least know in the case of Homer and Virgil and the author of Beowulf. We, we don't know very much about those authors at all, but in terms of their the consciousness of their projects and their poems, but we do about Dante. Dante was keenly aware of what he was doing. So maybe that's part of it too. Again, I think that's partly due to the, the time in which he wrote. Um, it's partly due to the fact, I think, that what he's relying on is this one great experience he had when he was very young with Beatrice. And he can't separate himself, I think, from that experience in a way that allows him... This is speculation, but I'm not sure he can separate himself from that in a way to have another hero be the hero of his story. And since the hero of his story is not this noble character like Oedipus or like Achilles, but rather a man in his comic or lowly estate, it seems more appropriate to put him there, himself there. I, I am the lowly sinner who is lost in Canto One, lost midway. Mid- midway the, through life's journey, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's good. I got to think more about this. Yeah, me too. Um, what uh, if somebody wants to get into the epics? Where would you Where would you start? Um, even Greeks, uh, would you start uh, with Iliad or Odyssey, or where's hmm. a good place to start for somebody who might be a little bit trepidatious mm-hmm. in diving in? For the young, I think starting with Tolkien is really good. Ah, the epic there, the, the Lord of the Rings as an epic, is just is wonderful and accessible. I think when you get to a certain age, I think the Odyssey is probably more accessible at an earlier age. The Iliad, it's just hard to understand Achilles and to sympathize even with him at an early age. It's not impossible, but it's just more difficult. It seems to be a cultural problem. I know it was for yes. me, and even particularly for men, I've found it difficult to get into fiction. I, f- I find it mm-hmm. difficult to read fiction. I think a lot of men have the same problem. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Part of it, I think, is that most of us have an impoverished background in reading fiction yeah. in schools. A lot of our high schools these days, certainly public schools, tend to give us really dark and depressing 20th century and tw- I guess maybe 21st century you know, fiction. I'm, I'm not surprised no one wants to read that when they get done with school. <laughs> I think getting our, our children more of the classical fiction that's appropriate to their age level would be really helpful in that regard. Hmm. Um, it would help them to, to not think of fiction as, as uh, below them or not important enough or... Uh, Something like that. I think. I think that would be, or even not enjoyable. I think when they get that, um, uh, when they're exposed to and read more as a, at a younger age, this, this, these great works, Tolkien included. I think that will. That's what I think is uppermost, what's most important in getting um, young people ready to read Homer and to read Virgil and to yeah. read Dante when they're a little bit older. And understanding how it connects, because when you just jump into Homer, it, it can be really boring, you know, like here's a yeah. litany of gods and right. flowery language, and it's just, you can't get into it until you realize this is about you. Yes. Yeah. People get into the catalog of ships pretty early in the Iliad, and they think, well, what am I doing? They just sort of blow through that and move on to the next book. Right. Yeah. It requires a certain maturity and a certain yeah. preparation, it seems to me. Yeah. But I wouldn't say, uh, put it off until you're 60, right? Read it when you're 20 or 25 or 30, and then... But make sure you get back to it when you're 30 or 40 or 50 and 60. You just appreciate it more the further along in life that you get. Definitely. 
uh, let's do a quick lightning round. I've been uh, yeah. floating around TAC for the last few days. I, I spoke to a group of men last night, and I was just so impressed uh, by the quality of That's student. Good. How long have you been teaching here? Uh, since 2012, so I guess seven years. Wow. Yeah. And, and you love it, I take it. I love it, yeah. What I mean, kind of student would you recommend uh, that give a look to TAC? Uh, if somebody's in high school or, got a parent, mm -hmm. or is a parent of somebody in high school, mm -hmm. um, who's the kind of person who could especially thrive here? Well, there's a couple things about TAC that um, are peculiar or maybe even unique to it that demand a certain quality in the students. So we have a lot of math and science. So you need to love math and science and be um, somewhat... a um, adept at it. So a background in that would be important. Um, most important is just a desire to read these books and to talk about them because you're not going to be lectured at. You're going to be involved in discussion day after day after day after day with your fellow students. You've got to be able to put up with them and with your tutor and enjoy that. Yeah. Um, what we really need to uh, look for in students, and we get a lot of these students, is uh, a great uh, sort of obvious and apparent love of what they're doing that spills out beyond the classroom into the dorm and into their their lives beyond the classroom, and that's really important. I, I also think that having a year or two of experience past high school is helpful. I'm not mm -hmm. saying we shouldn't have people apply who are 17, but if you are 18, 19, 20, 21, 25, 30 even, I think that's very valuable experience for yourself and your own education and the fruitfulness of it when you're here. I met a, a also, guy last night who was 25, and yes. he had, a, he had a, another bachelor's degree. Yes. And, uh, you know, he wanted more. So right. he came to TAC to do a, to do a second bachelor's degree. Yeah, we've, and he's loving it. He's like then. a duck in water. Yes, and he's really helpful to the rest of the student body. He can, in class, he has more experience to draw on, and he has more perspectives to draw on. It's really helpful to have students like that, too. Yeah. yeah. What's your favorite? I know every, every uh, tutor here teaches everything, mm -hmm. uh, which is a beautiful thing. What is your favorite? tutorial or favorite wow. lecture to teach whenever students ask i always say all of them because i, I want to punt on the question yeah um it's really hard to say I, I don't have a favorite tutorial i don't think i have got highlights of certain tutorials reading brothers karamazov reading scripture and freshman theology uh, reading homer those are the ones that really come to mind as highlights but i don't know that i have a favorite class um i do love teaching the language tutorial we have a really fascinating and, and wonderful and rich uh, two years of Latin that I really enjoy teaching. Uh, but I don't think I have any one that I'd say is my favorite tutorial. What's your favorite book not in the curriculum? Wow, that's a really good question. The one that comes to mind is Beowulf, which is not in the curriculum. Hmm. Not yet. I'm working on working it. Working on it. Yeah. Um, there's some books by uh, Chesterton, by Ronald Knox. I have a kind of love for... Uh, kind of an Anglophile in some ways hmm. that aren't in the program. Um, C.S. Lewis, Evolution of Man, um, Orthodoxy by Chesterton, Enthusiasm by Ronald Knox, books like that that I just love. But, um, probably Beowulf is, is the one that comes to mind most immediately. Yeah. Would you consider Beowulf a, a work of the Western tradition? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, it's an epic. It's not, you know, we've only known it for about 100 years or so. Yeah. So it's pretty new to the game. But it is, it's a magnificent. Western epic, yeah. What are the roots of Beowulf? What's its uh, its pedigree, or is it just its own animal? It definitely starts, you know, it seems to be the root of many subsequent works. Yes, that's right. Uh, it certainly is drawing off of uh, 
revelation of Christianity. It seems to come out of a culture in which Christianity has hmm. emerged and has become, uh, as a missionary effort, has engaged the culture and has come into the culture. But the culture doesn't seem yet to be fully Christian. There's still pagan elements. Yes. But it's not clear to me what those, what in particular those pagan elements are that is drawing on. Um, it's just, you know, Northern European, uh, what is it, 9th century, 8th century, maybe a little earlier than that, actually. But the particulars aren't clear to me what it's drawing on. I'm not sure anybody knows what it's drawing on. Hmm. Yeah. Quite cl- very clearly, at least. Uh, what are you working on? Anything you want to plug? Books that are out there? No books. I'm working on articles on, or lectures on um, the fundamental principles of literary criticism, using Homer in particular to help with that, and Aristotle. And I'm still working through that. That'll be a book eventually. Um, probably a book that I co-write with another tutor here. Um, but it's not out yet. We're still, I'm still putting it together in chapters. Um, I wonder sometimes about whether I should start writing things about uh, theological matters. I'm a, uh, as a former traditionalist, I have a deep interest in um, a lot of the new theological work that's being done on Vatican II, in particular on religious freedom. That really, I think. Say more be about being a former traditionalist. Well, you, know, just, you don't hear that every day. You don't. Uh, I went to um, St. Mary's College, not the one that maybe more people know, but the one in Kansas, the SSPX College. And I was a follower of that movement for several years um, until I was about 20. And eventually I um, changed schools and um, I would say came back to the church, came back from that. Um, but I have a deep attachment to a lot of the, the, uh, the desires and the, um, and the goods that those, that, that movement represents. Uh, it was the, the best liturgy I'd ever attended was there for two and a half years. It was absolutely glorious and great theological training in many, many ways. But I think there are some difficulties and some problems with it. And they have a, cri- a criticism of Vatican II in particular on the question of religious liberty that is, um, on the face of it, uh, unassailable. It's a, one, it's a uh, very difficult critique to reply to and to refute. But I think more late, lately there's been um, theological work done to help in that um, response. And I want to help get involved in that. I, I, uh, I think Thomas Pink is the person in particular who's helped out with that, and I'm kind of itching to get back in that game a little bit. Very good. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, Dr. Travis Cooper, thank you uh, for being here. My and, pleasure. Uh, thank you. Yep. Go read Homer. For more, visit magnusinstitute.org. That's M-A-G-N-U-S institute.org. Copyright Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved.